Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSO. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Overcomer. All right, so if you're with us last week, you know that James gave this radical statement, this radical message, which is this. He said, count it all joy when you face the trials of life. Count it all joy when you go through trouble, all right? And so how can we be happy when we're hurting? Here's how, hope. (laughs) We can be happy when we're hurting if we have hope, if we hang on to the sure hope, the sure certainty that God is at work, a sovereign God is at work through our trials, he's at work through our troubles, getting ready to do something awesome in our lives because God cannot, as I said last week, do a work through us until he has done a work inside of us. So what is he doing through trials? Last week we said he's testing us, he's purifying us, He's making us spiritually mature. He's making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. That was last week. This week, James is gonna switch gears. He's gonna switch gears from the topic of trials, and he's gonna begin to deal with the topic of temptations, all right? So right now, if you're looking at verse nine in James chapter one, could you say amen? Amen. So important if you're visiting with us Uh, that you follow along in the Bible because, ladies and gentlemen, what I say is nowhere near as important as what God says in his word. Verse nine, let the lowly brother, the poor brother, boast. If you have the King James, rejoice. If you have another version, it's glory. All the same idea here. Let the lowly, lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, all right? And so in these verses, James has a message for both the poor and the rich, and that already leads us to our first point if you wanna take notes this morning, and that is this. Both the poor and the rich should find their identity in the Savior and not in stuff. Both the poor and the rich should find their identity in the Savior and not in stuff, all right? So first, James addresses the poor. Look at it again, please. Verse nine, let the lowly brother, the poor brother, boast, glory, rejoice in his exaltation, in his exaltation. Now, why does James say this? I believe it's because if they're not careful, The poor people that James is writing to in the first century, and by the way, the Holy Spirit wants to apply to 2,000 years of Christians. If they're not careful, the poor people will be tempted to find their identity in material things. And because they don't have a lot of stuff, because they don't have a lot of material things, they might be tempted to think that they have less value than other people. Some poor People may be tempted to think, because I have less stuff, I have less value than other people. But the heart behind verse nine would say, absolutely not, no way. And I know that if James was sitting across a table from a poor person, he would say, dear poor brother or sister in Christ, just because you have less stuff doesn't mean you have less value. God loves 
you. You were made in the image of God. You are absolutely priceless. You may not have a lot of stuff, but you have a great savior. So stop focusing on what you don't have and start focusing on what you do have. Things like righteousness and joy and and peace in the Holy Spirit of God. That's what you need to focus on because God is a savior in the next life, but also in this life. He's a great God in the next life, but also in this life. And you can have abundant life in Jesus now and eternal life as co-heirs with Christ if you understand who you are in Christ. Poor man, poor lady, understand this. You need to rejoice in your exaltation. He addresses the poor. And then he addresses the rich. He says in verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Here it is in verse 10. And the rich in his, what? Humiliation. Do you see that in verse 10? Let the rich boast, inference, rejoice, inference, in his humiliation. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. I told you guys last week, James doesn't pull punches. He doesn't care about offending people. He just wants to speak the truth in love. Verse 11, and by the way, you need to know the Holy Spirit is inspiring this through James, and so this is God's word. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, all right? Why did James say this? I believe he knew that if they were not careful, the rich in his church, the rich that he's writing to, believers in Jesus all across the Roman Empire, if they weren't careful, they would be tempted to find their identity in material things. And because they had a lot of stuff, Right, they got the expensive house. They got the fancy chariot. They got the designer robes, the rings on their fingers, bags of gold at home, 20 camels, 30 donkeys, whatever. Because they had a lot of stuff, they may be tempted to think they have more value than others. Hey, because I got more stuff, I have more value than those people down there. And James says, no. I believe if James was sitting across the table from a rich brother or sister, he would say something like this. Dear rich brother or sister in Christ, you need to understand that because you have more stuff doesn't mean you have more value. Because just like the wildflowers in the field are here today and gone tomorrow, so your stuff is going to fade away. And you're gonna fade away with it if you put your identity in that stuff, in those material things. And so rich man, rich woman, rejoice in your humiliation. Now, this is not the message of our culture. This is not the message of the world. You go all around the world and what do you find? You find this, the rich are up here and the poor are down here. The rich are up here, we have more value, the poor are down here, we have less value. 
And the Holy Spirit through James says, no, 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 no. Let the poor brother or sister rejoice in their exaltation. Focus on who you are in Christ. Understand your identity in Jesus Christ and let the rich brother or sister rejoice, accept their humiliation because your stuff is not gonna last. You need to know who you are in Christ because ladies and gentlemen, at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. That's the truth of the scriptures. That's a biblical worldview. It goes counter, counter to our culture. And that's the spirit we gotta have in this local church. That's the spirit all of you guys who are watching right now and ladies, that's the understanding, the view that we have to have. There is no I'm up here, you're down here. There's God's up here and we're priceless and made in his image and equal in value. Amen. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, as I said last week, Job is the perfect example of verse 12. Job proved that his faith was genuine, why? Because he endured all the fiery trials that he went through. And so instead of taking his wife, his wife's advice, right, in Job chapter two, verse nine, she looks at Job, she says, honey, right, that's in the original Hebrew, honey, shall uh, curse God and die. Curse God and die, after all that Job had been through, all the difficulty, just curse God and die. Instead of taking his wife's advice, and I didn't put this in last week, I'll share it with you now. Do you know how Job responded? He said in Job 2.10, honey, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Now, I wanna say that again because that messes with some of your theology. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble from God? God causes trouble? Yes, were you here last week? God brings trials. God brings trouble. God brings difficulty into our lives. Why? To test our faith, to purify us. To, to make us spiritually mature so that he can see his reflection at some point in our lives. God is at work there. And so yes, the Lord uses trials and troubles to test our faith. And if we remain steadfast, we like Job, will prove that our faith is genuine, it's real, it's not fake. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're with me, say amen. amen. If our faith is genuine, one day we'll receive the crown of life. If our faith is fake, Judas Iscariot, we have nothing to look for except eternal separation from God. But if our faith is genuine, then we will receive the crown of life, eternal life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. <laughs> For God cannot be tempted with evil, 
and he himself tempts no one. That's very interesting. The same word for trial in verse two and 12 is the same word for temptation in verse 13. But there's two different definitions which are based on the context. So I'm not gonna get into it too, too deep, but what I will point you to if you do have a Ryrie Study Bible is that in verse 13, the word temptation can be defined as, quote, a solicitation to evil. Okay, does God cause trials and troubles? Yes. But as we're going through those trials and troubles, if we're not allowing him to purify us, if we're not allowing him to mature us, if we're not allowing him to make us more like Jesus Christ, and we cop an attitude, and we decide that, you know what, I don't like this, and we begin to act the wrong way, children of Israel, initially, after they came out of the Red Sea in the wilderness, complaining about their lack of water, grumbling against Moses. If we respond the wrong way, then guess what? The enemy's right there to tempt us. Our flesh is right there to tempt us, okay? And so God, James would say, is pure. He's holy. He would never solicit somebody to evil. He cannot and he will not, all right? So if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his, what are the last two words in verse 14? Can you just say those out loud? Go ahead. There it is. There's the problem right there. Each person is tempted when he is lured, drawn away, and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, so here we see that this whole idea of giving in to temptation and falling away from the Lord does not happen overnight. <laughs> you just don't wake up one day and commit some, some, some horrendous sin. No, 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 listen. The process of, of giving into temptation and falling away is a process. And I, I really believe this. I really believe that if we, as God's people, can understand the process, I believe that if we can understand what's going on, what the enemy is trying to do, I believe if we understand it, then we can get victory over temptation. We can become overcomers in life. We can accurately represent God until the day that we take our last breath. So what is the process of falling away? Let's really get deep now into the application of this. Here it is. Detect, dwell, desire, drawn away, do, and death. After I accepted Christ as my savior, I went to a Baptist church for 10 years, and that's why I really try to make everything start with the same letter, because that's what I learned in those churches. Detect, dwell, desire, drawn away, do, death. The first step is detect. That means we become aware of something that's potentially evil. We see it. It comes on our radar. 
And by the way, that's where you gotta deal with it, right there. I'll talk about that in a minute. But if we don't deal with it, it turns into desire. And so instead of taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, what do we do? We keep thinking about whatever that is. And if that's not dealt with, that turns, I'm sorry, it turns, detect turns into dwell, but if that's not dealt, dealt with, it turns into desire, right? Because we choose to continue to think about it, what happens is that we develop a des strong desire for it. And so our thoughts are to our desires what kindling is to a fire. The more wood you put on the fire, the more intense and hotter the fire becomes, the more we think about whatever that is, the more intense and strong that desire becomes within us. And if that's not dealt with, then the next thing is drawn away. And so if this is God, and this is Satan, and this is us, as we continue to dwell, and as we continue to desire, we're being lured, we're being drawn away further and further from God, and closer and closer to an enemy who's licking his chops because he's seeking whom he may devour. And then, sadly, do. We actually sin against God. Can you just think about that for a minute? We sin against God? A God who created us? A God who loves us? For the born-again Christian, the God who saved us? God's never done anything against us. God's only done stuff for us, and yet we choose to break his commandments and sin against God. And here's what I'm so sad about in the American church today. Sin is taken so lightly. And it's all about grace. Hey, brother, I'm not into guilt. I'm into grace. Well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, Romans 6, 1 and 2? God forbid. We need to take this seriously. And so detect dwell, desire, drawn away, do, and then the last step is death, according to God's word. So once that wrong desire gives birth to sin in our lives, listen to this, if we choose to allow that sin to grow and we don't repent, it will cause our demise. Now this was played out in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes up to Eve. The serpent says, did God actually say, Eve, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, and Eve says, well, no, 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 you, you got it wrong. God didn't say that we can't eat from the trees of the garden. What he said is you can't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden because if you do that, if you touch it, or if you eat it, you're gonna die. Now, I don't know where Eve got touch it, that's not what God said, but he did say if you eat it, you're gonna die. And here's Satan's response. You're not gonna die. That's what he always does. He questions God's word. He brings doubt to what God has said. You're not gonna die. God's holding out on you, for he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be open and you're gonna be like God, knowing good and evil. You wanna be like God, Eve? 
And then now look at what Eve says in the very next verse. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a, look at this, delight to the eyes, that's where it starts, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband, look at this, who was with her? I think I was a Christian for years before I ever really saw those four words, who was with her. Her. Adam wasn't off fishing somewhere. He was right there. Why did, did he say anything? Guys, listen. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, to just be passive, to just sit around. No, you gotta do something. But Adam didn't do anything, right? And so he, she gave some to him and he ate. And so what was the process of Adam and Eve falling away, or at least Eve falling away. Here's the process right here. Detect, she saw the fruit. And it was delightful to look at. And then dwell. The longer the conversation went on with the serpent, the more she kept thinking about that fruit, that fruit, that fruit. And that, because she didn't deal with it, led to a desire. Why? Because our thoughts are to our desire what kindling is to a fire, the more wood, the more intense the fire gets, the more we think about it, the stronger our desire becomes. And then she was drawn away. If this is God, and this is the serpent, and this is Eve, the more she dwelled on it, and the more she desired it, the more, the further she was drawn from God and to the serpent who was deceiving her. And then what happened? Do, she ate the fruit and gave some to her husband and he ate it. So what was the result? When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they immediately died spiritually. Immediately, as soon as they took that bite, they were cut off from God, separated from God, and in need of forgiveness and redemption and salvation. They immediately died spiritually and they began to die physically. That means for the first time since they were created, they began to age and eventually they died. And so it's played out in the Garden of Eden, this process of falling away. And it was played out 3,000 years ago on the roof of a palace. And so in the spring, when kings are supposed to go out to war, King David sent out his army to fight against their enemy, but you know what he did? He decided, I'm gonna sit this one out. I'm gonna stay back at home. I'm gonna remain in Jerusalem. I'm gonna put my feet up. I'm gonna get some R&R. &R. Listen to this. I'm gonna take off my armor. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in a spiritual battle and if we decide, Ephesians chapter six, to take off our spiritual armor, we're gonna get in trouble. I mean, do you, do you guys who are here today, watching at home, do you really believe that the devil is a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour? It's true, we have an enemy. And so if we take off our spiritual armor, we're asking for trouble. David took off his armor and he got in trouble. 
You guys know the story. He's walking along on the rooftop. He looks down and he sees a beautiful woman who's bathing. And here's where he made his first mistake. He made his first mistake in that he did not divert his eyes. He should have said, what? <laughs> no, but he kept looking. And 2 Samuel 11 puts it this way. He, everybody say the word saw. That's where it starts. From the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. All right, so what's the process of David falling away? It's the same. It all started with detect. He saw the beautiful woman bathing. And then he didn't deal with it there. He started to dwell on it. And so instead of diverting his eyes, he kept looking at her, he kept thinking about her beauty. And because he didn't deal with that, it led to desire. Because our thoughts are to our desire, what kindling is to a fire. The more wood you add to the fire, the more intense the fire becomes, the more we keep thinking about whatever it is, the stronger, more intense our desire becomes. And by the way, let me just throw this in before I talk about drawn away. Do you guys know that David committed adultery with Bathsheba on the roof of the palace before he ever invited her to the palace and to his bedroom? You know why, right? New Covenant Christian? Because Jesus, our Savior, said, and I quote, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already blown it but he's about to continue to blow it because after detect, dwell, desire, he was drawn away. If this is God and this is the enemy and this is David, the more he dwelled on it and the more he desired it, the further he got away from God, drawn away, the closer he got to the enemy who's licking his chops thinking, now is my time, I'm gonna get this guy and then sadly do, he called her to his room, committed adultery with her and to make matters worse, he had her husband killed to cover it all up. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. This is a man that God said is a man after my own heart. And he did this? He committed adultery? He committed murder? A man after God's heart? Yes, he really was a man after God's heart. And so if David can fall, I can fall. You can fall. The most spiritual born-again Christian can fall. This message is for all of us. We've got to listen not just with our heads, but with our hearts. And we've got to start to implement some of these things so that we're not just another statistic. And so, what was the result? In time, thank God, David repented. You can read Psalm 51 later. He turned from his sin, he repented. God forgave him and so he did not die. But how many of you guys understand that even though we have forgiveness in Christ, there's still consequences to our sin? All right, if this afternoon I decide to go rob a bank and then I ask God for forgiveness, is God gonna forgive me? Yes, but guess what, I'm going to jail. You see that? 
And so the consequences were awful. The child that was conceived the night of the affair died. The sword never left David's house for the rest of his life. His son Absalom committed treason against his own dad, ran him out of Jerusalem, ran him out of the palace. Absalom went into the palace, and then Absalom went on to the top of the palace and, and made a tent, and one by one, he slept with his own father's concubines so all Israel could see what was happening in the tent. And then Absalom later was killed in battle. Eve was deceived. David was deceived. We don't have to be deceived. Look at verse 16. Very simple, very straightforward. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All right, and so here's some good news. We don't have to fall away. We can actually be overcomers. All right, and so for the rest of the message, I'm gonna give you some real practical steps of how you can overcome temptation in your life. And the first point is you gotta magnify the consequences. This is important. Magnify the consequences. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Right, so we all know you reap what you sow. You harvest what you plant. What comes around goes around. So that's a universal law. And if it's true, and it is, then we should think about the hook before we take the bite. When that lure is in the water and that unsuspecting fish swims by, here's the thing. All the fish is thinking about is I'm hungry. That looks tasty. I think I'm gonna take a bite. And all of a sudden, chomp! And the next thing you know, there's a hook in his jaw and that fish is being dragged up to a place it does not want to go and that night, it's dinner for somebody. And so the forbidden fruit, right, looks so good to Eve, but she didn't see the hook. <laughs> chomp, and her husband, chomp, and the next thing you know, they plunge the entire human race into sin and death. Come on, there's consequences. We don't have to be deceived. Bathsheba looked so good to David, right? But he did not see the hook. Chomp, and the next thing you know, he's filled with this guilt and this grief, and he says, I think it's in Psalm 6, I'm, I'm, I'm wetting my couch with my tears over his sins of adultery and murder. He's facing the death of his child. He's facing the rebellion of, of his son Absalom. He's facing public humiliation and public sorrow. So before we bite, we should think about the hook. We should magnify the consequences. Now, the reason that I get passionate about this subject particularly is, is I've been doing this for a long time. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, I've seen one person after another person after another person, I know you have too, fall. Godly people fall. And so I'm just gonna take one, one sin out of 100, the sin of lust. What are the consequences? If a person gives into lust, he 
or she may, number one, contact a sexually transmitted disease. That's no fun. Two, suffer a significant blow to their character. Three, give the reputation of Jesus and his church yet another black eye. Four, face public exposure and shame. Five, this is horrible, cause unnecessary pain and confusion for their spouse. And, and at least as, as, as important as that, and as bad as that, cause unnecessary pain and confusion in the life of their kids. Kids who statistically grow up and many of them blame themselves for why mom and dad are no longer together. And not only that, the paying of child support. And not only that, the paying of alimony for a long, long time. Right, and I go on and on. But the question is, is it worth it? And of course the answer is no. So what should we do? Think about the hook before you take the bite. Magnify the consequences. But then if you're taking notes, number two, how do you overcome temptation? You should deal with it, I should deal with it early on. This is, this is huge right here. You see, the lure of sin is much easier to deal with when we deal with it in the early stages. The early stages. Look again at the process here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's so much easier to deal with potential sin in steps one and two than it is trying to deal with that later on down the line. So what does that mean? That means don't let detect turn into dwell. It's your choice and it's my choice. Don't let detect turn into dwell. Martin Luther said this, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. So we can't stop these fleeting thoughts from going through our brain that just happens. It's part of life in a fallen world. But we do have a choice as to whether we're gonna dwell on that thought or not. And here's what I'm, 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 I'm here to tell you this, that with the help of the Holy Spirit of God, you and I really can take every single thought captive and make that thought obedient to Jesus Christ. But if we choose to keep dwelling on it, we're letting these birds build a nest in our hair. That's not wise. So if you wanna avoid the various addictions and strongholds of life, deal with it earlier. Deal with it when it's just a thought. Because here's what I know, if you let that thing grow, eventually it's gonna be so difficult to deal with. And I know I'm preaching and teaching right now to a lot of young people. And I just wanna say this to the young people who are watching. I'm trying to save you decades of heartache and pain. And I'm trying to save your unborn children from a bunch of heartache and pain if you'll just listen and learn and live what we're talking about today. How do you overcome temptation? Number three, if you're taking notes, use God's word. How many of you here today believe that this book is very powerful? There's power in God's word. And there's power in God's spirit. Here's what I know. Me, myself, Mike Wiggins, I am no match for the enemy. I am no match for the devil. He can easily whip my behind. But when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and when I'm using God's word, then the devil is no match 
for Christ and his word in me. That's the key. That's the key. John said in 1 John 2, 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You see it? The hope is right there in 1 John 2, 14. There's a group of young men in the church in the first century and guess what? They overcame the enemy. They got to their last breath and they accurately represented God. They didn't live a perfect life, but they lived a victorious Christian life. Why? Because they learned how to use God God's word to overcome the devil, just like Jesus in the wilderness. How many of you guys know that when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, the first time the devil came from behind a tree and made himself apparent, how many of you guys believe that as the eternal, uncreated son of God, he could have breathed the devil into hell like that? Here's, here's what I love about Jesus. He was not only 100% God, he was 100% man, human. And he wanted to help us and give us an example of how we as humans do spiritual warfare in this life. And so instead of breathing him into hell, what he did is he used the word of God and went toe to toe with the enemy in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread. It is written, devil, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? That hurts the devil. Because he's no power. He has no, he has no, no, uh, no way that he can resist God's word. And so, how many of you guys know the devil never gives up? Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test. Jesus used the word again. Fall down and worship me. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus, on our behalf, taught us to use the word of God in spiritual warfare and what does the Bible say? It says that the devil left him. Now, did the devil come back? <laughs> yeah, he always comes back. But you can get temporary relief from the enemy if you learn to use God's word. And so don't shout it out, but whatever problem you're dealing with right now that you're thinking about, whatever problem that is, I love technology, because here's what you can do. You can Google um, verses on lust. Boom, there they all are. And then you can write those things down if you're an old guy like me on a three by five card, or you can, if you're a younger person into technology, type those things out on your note page on your phone, and now all of a sudden you have God's word. And the first time you get tempted, you pull that word up and you think about it. Memorize it. And then speak it out and believe what you're saying as you speak it out. And the enemy cannot resist that. He cannot stand that. He'll leave. He'll come back, I know. And so, get some other verses and be ready. This is how we overcome the enemy. We use God's word. Verses about fear, worry, doubt, discouragement, jealousy, division, how to have boldness, comfort, faith, encouragement, purity, contentment. We gotta be people of the word of God. And so we should write these things down, these, this, this, these verses down. We should memorize them. We should speak them out. And when we speak them out, we should speak it out with faith. That's how we win the battle. Final point. 
How do we overcome temptation? Well, magnify the consequences. Think about the hook. Deal with it early. In between, detect and dwell. Use God's word. Write out those verses, memorize them, speak them in faith. And then walk by the Spirit. Here's God's promise to you and me, Galatians 5, 16. You ready for this? Listen, walk in the Spirit, okay, here's the promise. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Nobody gives in to temptation and sins while they're walking in the Spirit. It's just impossible, it cannot happen. Now, do some people sin if they're indwelt by the Spirit? Yes, but I'm not talking about being just indwelt by the Spirit. There's another experience. It's being filled to overflowing with the Spirit. It's coming under the influence of the Spirit. It's walking in the Spirit. That guy, that gal, will not give in to temptation as they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's word says it, and if God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's what we have to do as Christians. And so it's a daily surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for my own life, man, I go to the Lord, right? And I, I say, God, I cannot do this day without you. You're the vine, I'm the branch. Without you, I can do nothing. Lord, please fill me with your spirit. Please fill me to overflowing with your spirit. Please give me the power and the love and the wisdom that I need today. Lord, you know what I'm gonna face today and I need your help to accurately represent you. Lord, I know the old Mike. I know who that guy is. I don't like that guy. That guy was buried but Lord, I wanna walk in newness of life. I wanna be the new Mike. I don't wanna be the old Mike, right, that's self-centered, easily offended, sometimes gets angry. I don't wanna be that guy, deals with worry. I don't wanna be that guy. And so Lord, here's what I know. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, Christ is in me. And now I have new life. And so, Lord, would you help me by your spirit? Would you fill me and help me today? And guess what? When that kind of prayer is said in faith, do you guys really think God's gonna answer that prayer? 1,000%. And the good news is this. He'll give you the power, wisdom, and love that you need to live the victorious Christian life. Not a perfect Christian life, but the victorious Christian life. Now, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit until you come to know the Savior. And I'm not talking about a religion. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here's the first step. If you're not sure that you know God, if you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, the first step is this, you've got to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. That is step number one. You gotta make a choice. I need Jesus. He died for me. He rose again the third day. 
He's alive and well. And he's a gentleman, he's not gonna force himself on me. And so I need to turn to him in repentance and faith. And when you do that, you will, by faith, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will make all the difference in the world. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. I wanna ask you to please watch this video, and we'll see you next weekend.